It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Hello, friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? Every time a jet plane lands, you see a little puff of white smoke as the wheels make contact with the ground. This is because each tire leaves about one and a half pounds of burnt rubber on the runway. Aircraft tires are stationary until touchdown, when the sudden contact with the ground causes tremendous friction, quickly whipping them up to speeds of more than 150 miles an hour and producing temperatures of around 500 degrees Fahrenheit. Jumbo planes, like the Airbus 380 with 22 tires, leave as much as 30 pounds of rubber on the runway with each landing. In case you're wondering, a jet tire is only good for about 200 landings before it needs to be retreaded or replaced. As you might guess, this rapid buildup of rubber can make runways very slick when wet. At larger airports, specialized crews must go out at night three or four times weekly to remove hundreds of pounds of excess tire rubber from the runways and clean it from the runway lights. It's estimated that 10,000 pounds of aircraft tire rubber is removed from U.S. airports' runways annually. <laughs> You've probably seen that, Pastor Ross, when the planes come in, you see a big poof when they first make contact. That's right. You know, you always wonder, why don't they figure out a way to turn the tires? But I guess they're going to have to spin them real fast to get 150 miles or whatever it is to touch down without the, the puff of smoke. But, yeah, it's sort of a standard thing. I was wondering the same thing. thing. I thought maybe they could find some air pressure to get them spinning so yeah. there's not so much friction when they make contact but um, yeah i'm glad that they they clean off the mm-hmm. the rubber every now and then and you know they have to wait until the last planes come in at night you know sometimes it might be two in the morning then the crew gets out there real quick and the lights on and they clean off the runway and get it ready for the next day or next few days and it just reminded me that you know as we go through this life uh, even though we come to the Lord and we've accepted Jesus and uh, we're baptized and our sins are washed away, sometimes we need a uh, a refreshing. We need to be re-cleansed. And, uh, uh, you know, Jesus actually established something at the Last Supper where he washed the disciples' feet. And he said, you know, not only are we to remember the Lord's death and sacrifice through the communion of the bread and the grape juice, But Jesus said, uh, if I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. And um, so it's like a mini baptism. But it makes me think of that verse that if we confess our sins, and this is 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're cleansed by coming to the Lord. We repent and we confess our sins. But then why do we need baptism? Well, you know, you mentioned, Pastor Doug, that communion or the foot washing is a miniature baptism. But the Bible's clear that when one receives Christ as his personal Savior, 
he needs to make a public profession of that, and that is through baptism. Uh, Jesus said, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, cannot enter the kingdom of, of God. So that public confession of our faith, to be baptized by immersion, following the example of Jesus, it's an important step, and it's a, it's a wonderful step for the one being baptized. Mm -hmm. It's a new beginning. It's cleansing from the past. You can claim the promise of the verse you just read, that if we confess our sins, Christ will forgive us and cleanse us, and you come up out of the water, and you have a new walk with Christ. It's an exciting experience. And then the... Uh when we have the Lord's Supper, communion, and even foot washing, that's sort of like cleaning the runway mm. every now and then. That's right. <laughs> well, I think we have a free offer that talks about We do. About it's one that. of the Amazing Facts study guides, and it's called Purity and Power. And this is our free gift to anyone who is listening. All you need to do is call the number 800-835-6747 and ask for offer number 121. And we'll be happy to send that to you. That's 800-835-6747. Ask for the book. It's called Purity and Power. It's actually part of our Amazing Facts Study Guide series. Or another way to get it is simply by dialing pound 250 on your smartphone. Say Bible Answers Live and then ask for the gift. And we'll be happy to send it to you. But let's begin this broadcast with prayer. Then we have other exciting announcements to share along the way. All right, let's start with prayer. Dear Father, once again, we are grateful for the opportunity to be able to open up your word and study. As we always do, Lord, we ask for your presence to be with us here in the studio and also be with those who are listening, if they're in their car, at home, wherever they might be. And Lord, lead us to a clear understanding of truth. For the Bible says you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Thank you for your promise to be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're ready to go to the phone lines. Our first caller this evening is calling from Texas. we got Jerry in Texas. Jerry, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks. Uh, you know, science always is, tries to outdo God. Are we able, is science able to look back in time, the days of Hezekiah, when the sun was turned back 10 degrees? You know, I... I was thinking about that, and uh, I don't know that science would be able to do it because, you know, what markers would they have in the sky that would demonstrate that? Uh, I was wondering, it, was there any historical account? Because Hezekiah, he lived, what, 700 B.C.? You would think maybe there was some other nation. Now, it does say in the Bible that the, um, the Magi in Babylon noticed it. Of course, everyone noticed it. And they actually sent emissaries to find out about the wonder that had been done. So in the Bible, it says other nations took note of it, but I don't know of extra-biblical history where it's mentioned. I mean, God can do anything, but if you stop the earth spinning on its, on its axis for that period of time and then started it up again, there would be nothing in nature to uh, indicate that other yeah. than just the long day that the people had when they were there. Yeah, and people would say, well, that was a really long day. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've had those days. <laughs> so I, it'd be hard to find, Jerry. Uh, I haven't heard of anything, but uh, I might poke around on the Internet and see if there's anything in history. Next caller that we have is Lois from Florida. Lois, welcome to the program. Hello, Pastor. How are you doing? Oh, it's Lewis. Hi. Lewis, How sorry, Lewis. Sorry. If everything's okay. Yes, and your question. My question is from Revelation 21, verse 4 the ending where it says the former things have passed away how much are we to actually remember like our families or or anything like that do we remember anything well i think when it says uh, the former things have passed away uh it's telling us that uh, all the painful memories will be gone god is going to wipe away our tears i think that uh, not only are we hurt by painful events 
we often are hurt when we remember them. And, you know, you can see tears coming to a person's eye, eyes when they talk about someone they love the past way. They're just visiting that in their mind and it brings pain. Um, but I think that God is going to cleanse us from the painful memories. And it's not that he's going to brainwash us. I think our minds are going to be so filled with the glory of the future that we won't be looking back. It's like Paul says, forgetting those things that are behind, I press on. And so God wants his people to be forward thinking. Mm -hmm. Once you repent of your sins, you, you leave them there. God buries them in the depths of the sea. We move forward. And you know, that's true even in life today. People have gone through some difficult experiences, but the pain does wear off to some degree. Mm -hmm. And uh, here, the promise in the new earth, uh, those painful experiences or memories will eventually fade away. And there'll be nothing to take away from the joy and just the worship, the experience of being mm -hmm. eternally in heaven. Amen. Um, all right, thank you for your call. Next caller that we have is Gary listening in Illinois. Gary, welcome to the program. Thank you. My question is about our covenant with God. I know the first one was circumcision and then the Ten Commandments, but now Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 28 says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the many for the forgiveness of sins. So to understand that, I, I go to 1 John first night. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the new covenant is Jesus forgiving sin in view of sanctification. Am I right? No one is saved by the law. In the Old Testament, they were saved by faith. In the Old Covenant, though, it talks about God made an agreement with his people where he said, here's my law, and the people said, all the Lord has said, we will do. But they broke the law almost immediately. They made a golden calf. And then God said in Jeremiah, he said, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I'll write my law on their hearts. Now, the covenants were all sealed with blood. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was sealed with a symbol for Christ's blood. It was the blood of a lamb. That's why when Jesus got baptized, John the Baptist said, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is basically saying, the New Covenant is not based on the Lamb's blood. It's based on the precious blood of the Son of God. Yes, and it's through that we're both justified and sanctified, as you mentioned. Through faith in that, our sins are forgiven, and we walk in a newness of life. So hopefully that helps. You know, we have a, a really good book that I think you'd enjoy, and it talks about that, uh, that covenant. It's a sermon book, and I think it's got uh, a little lamb on the cover. and talks about the, the plan of salvation and what that new covenant is. And if you'd like, we'll be happy to send you a copy of that, Gary. And you call and ask for the book on the, uh, new, the new Covenant. As a matter of fact, here it is. It's called Blood Behind the Veil. It's got a lamb on the cover. That's, the that's one, probably yeah. the one you're thinking of. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's the free offer. We'll be happy to send it to anyone wanting to learn more about the New Covenant. It's called Blood Behind the Veil. And uh, to call, just uh, to get it, just call the number 800-835-6747. You can ask for the book. It's called Blood Behind the Veil. Or dial pound 250 on your smartphone. Say, Bible Answers Live. Ask for that by name, Blood Behind the Veil. And we'll be happy to send it to you. All right, next caller that we have is Philip, listening in Arkansas. Philip, you're on Bible Answers Live. Hi, thank you. My question is in Revelation 14, after the three angels' messages, you get to verse 13, and it says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So my question is, what's different about those who die in the Lord after the three angels' messages versus those who have always died in the Lord? 
Yeah, good question. You know, I think it's referring to a time of trouble that is coming upon the earth. According to Daniel chapter 12, it says when Michael stands up, there will be a time of trouble worse than the world has ever seen. Uh, we know that um, God's people will be protected during that time, but it's still going to be a difficult time for, for a lot of people. I mean, you've got the seven last plagues that are pouring out. There's a, a lack of food. The water is turning to blood. You can just read the description that it, that has there. And here is sort of a, a, a blessing pronounced upon those who have faith in God. They are laid to rest before the final time of trouble. Their reward is in heaven. And it's true, everyone who's died in faith, they are blessed. But in the context of the last days and the events that are taking place, there's actually a blessing for those who are laid to rest before the final events occur. That's right. Yeah, and uh, I think I was looking for the verse. It's in Isaiah where it says that none considers that some of the people that die are saved from the wrath to come. Mm -hmm. And back in Isaiah's day, he knew the Babylonian captivity was coming. He says those that die before that, it's going to be a blessing. And before the great time of trouble, and which you find in Revelation 14, as you say, it's going to be a blessing for those to go to sleep and not have to experience that. Next caller that we have is uh, Anna, listening in Oregon. Anna, welcome to the program. Evening, pastors. My question tonight is, who are the 24 elders in Revelation? Are they elders that were resurrected when uh, after Jesus, or are they beings from other planets? Well, there are two theories. Uh, I'll tell you what. One theory is that, you know, when Christ died and rose again, actually it says when he died there was an earthquake and many graves were opened, and some of the saints or many of the saints that slept around Jerusalem were raised and ascended to heaven with him. Some have thought, well, maybe those 24 elders are composed of some of the saints that were buried around Jerusalem that came forth with Christ. Um, that would be a pretty narrow sample of the people that God would put around the throne. Uh, the other theory, and this is probably the one I ascribe to, is that the Bible tells us in Job there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, sons of God, and they are like the leaders of unfallen worlds. Adam was called the son of God, and he was to have dominion of this world, but he gave it to the devil. So instead of Adam showing up, Satan comes to this heavenly meeting. Again, I'm talking about Job chapter 1. And so it's been believed that, you know, these 24 elders are really representatives of God's unfallen cosmos out there that have come. It's also a play on what you see. When I say play on, it's like there's a symbol in the Old Testament. You read where both David and Solomon, they had leadership that surrounded them in the number of 24, which is, of course, 12 times 12. It's symbolizing, you know, God's leadership in heaven. Yeah, maybe just one more thing on that, Pastor Doug. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 23, this is the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. It says, the Lord shall reign before his elders gloriously. Yeah. And that's the go. Old Testament. Yeah. And uh, you read in Revelation chapter 4, you have the 24 elders that are already in heaven. And Christ doesn't appear until chapter 5. And so they're already in heaven waiting for Jesus. And he appears as a lamb as it had been slain. So it appears as though these elders, as you said, are representatives of the unfallen worlds. And there they are, that great council that are witnessing the uh, cosmic conflict between mm -hmm. Christ and Satan. All right, next caller that we have is Glenn, listening in Ohio. Glenn, welcome to the program. Thank you for taking my call, gentlemen. Mm -hmm. I have a word in my mind, a religious word, and I've used that word in religious conversations for most of my 85 and a half years. 
But at a Bible study one night a couple of years ago, I asked the question, and everybody giggled until nobody could give an answer to the question. Mm-hmm. The word is you see it with a definite article only. You never see it with an indefinite article. You see it as an adverb, as a noun, as a direct object. But I don't know what the word means or what it is. Can you help me? The word is glory. Glory. I think I can. Uh, you find the word glory in the Bible many times. And uh, it's talking about, matter of fact, I'm looking right now, and it says 379 times it appears. When you think of glory, think of something that is bright, but in the Bible context, it's not just bright. It's a symbol of holy splendor. And so you've got this brilliant, holy splendor around the Lord. And um, it says when Moses came down from the mountain after talking to God, his face was shining. And then Paul talks about, you know, the glory that uh, Moses had was so bright he veiled his face, but how much more glorious is Christ? Um, And you have a lot of examples of this, but I think the word may be used a few different ways, but that's probably the most prominent. Mm Mm-hmm. You've got the glory, as you mentioned, the glory of God, this, this power, this presence. The Bible speaks of that. But then the Bible also tells us to give God glory. Mm-hmm. So not only does God have glory in and of himself, but we can give him glory. And the way we do that is to live a life that brings honor to his name, to be obedient to what he asks us to do. We are giving glory to God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Right. The first angel's message in Revelation 14 says, fear God and give him glory. So it's more than just the glorious presence of God, but it's actually willing obedience that is part of giving glory. And even with our mouths, you know, when we praise him, we mm-hmm. can be glorifying God in our words as well. So that's, uh, I know that's broad, but it's one of those words that, uh, it's a glorious word. <laughs> Hope that helps a little bit, Glenn. By the way, I, I've got a little book, it's called The Two Witnesses, and it talks about the glorious mount. And this is uh, where... God's glory is revealed on the mountain to Peter, James, John, and Jesus is transfigured. And it discusses that a little bit. To receive the book, just call and ask for it. The number is 800-835-6747. You can ask for the book. It's called The Glorious Mount. Or dial pound 250 on your smartphone. Say Bible Answers Live and say, I'd like the book, The Glorious Mount. You know, Pastor Doug, we're getting a lot of folks who are actually doing that. they just dialing pound 250 mm, and they're great. able to get the free offer right there. It's easy. Easy number to remember. Next caller that we have is uh, Dwayne listening from Georgia. Dwayne, welcome to the program. Hey, good evening, gentlemen. Uh, evening. I, I got a question about the Sabbath. Uh, is it a friend of mine is telling me that uh, he, he believes that we have lost sight of the true Sabbath uh, through Babylon. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, uh, either one of you. Uh, he claims that the Sabbath days fall on the same days of the month, uh, like the 15th, the 22nd, then the 29th, and that uh, they uh, always follow in like the three months in a row of, that follow a new moon cycle. Have you ever heard of anything like this? And is it, I, I just find it hard to believe that God would ever let us lose sight of his true day of worship. Yeah, that, that's, a, um, that's a, a teaching that I, I think is very unbiblical. It's called the Lunar Sabbath, and they they think that uh, we're to pick the weekly Sabbath based upon the lunar cycles, but there's really nothing in the Bible that I find that teaches that. The Sabbath always was based on a numerical weekly cycle 
of one through seven, one through seven, one through seven that is continued in continuity from Adam to the present day. And there are people that have written the U.S. Naval Observatory and the observatory in Greenwich, England, and said, you know, there have been any, any change to the calendar that has affected the continuity of the weekly cycle. And they say, the weekly cycle has gone back in continuity since long before the Christian era. And, uh, you know, the Jews have been tracking it um, ever since uh, the Exodus when, you know, it goes all the way to Adam because God creates the first Sabbath on the seventh day in Genesis chapter 2. And then it says, Abraham kept my laws and my commandments. So, you know, the, the Jews were keeping it. They lost it in Egypt or they started ignoring it. God got them back on track again when he started raining manna from heaven. He says, you're going to get six days a week. You'll get enough for one day. On Friday, gather enough for two days because the next day is a Sabbath. And there won't be any on that day. And so uh, yeah, God very clearly for 40 years reestablished what that cycle was. And it was one through seven. had nothing to do with the moon. So I've heard that before, and it, I think you really have to torture your logic to say that the Sabbaths are governed by the moon. Mm -hmm. And then we know that Jesus, according to the Gospels, he kept the Sabbath as his custom was, mm -hmm. and that was 2,000 years ago. And since then, we have a whole nation that has been at least aware of which day of the week is the Sabbath. Yeah. Maybe have, the Jews haven't all kept the Sabbath, but they know which day is the mm -hmm. Sabbath. And it's been uh, kept ever since. So there should be no doubt. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Next caller that we have is Lee in Texas. Lee, welcome to the program. Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call tonight. Yes, sir. And how can we help you? Well, I'm not supposed. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to ask this question, but I, I guess I can ask anyway and see if I if I am wrong. Um, there are six chapters to the Pope's encyclical Laudato Si. Uh huh. What happens when all six are done? You mean when they're implemented? Yes, sir. Yeah, well, uh, you know, the popes have had encyclicals for, you know, 1,500 years, uh, and it, it'll lay out the, the ideals that they want. I don't know that any pope has ever seen all of it fulfilled. And uh, the Laudato Se um, uh, encyclical that Pope Francis wrote, and I understand he's coming up with a, a 2.0 version of it. It's, it's been updated or expanded. They, it was unique in that it especially focused on the environment, and um, f folks are interested to see, you know, how's he going to implement this? Well, so far, you know, he's campaigned for um, changes and things that would affect global warming. And, but, he, you know, he certainly hasn't been able to implement all the changes that he had as ideals in his letter. But it does tell us that the important thing about when the Pope issues an encyclical, it reveals kind of what their uh, desired agenda is. And so this one was very interesting because it was unique in that I think Francis became the first pope that really said uh, that, you know, the Christians need to focus on saving the planet instead of moral change. It was making, you know, environmental issues a moral issue. So that was interesting. We'll be back in just a few moments. So don't go anywhere. More questions are coming. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. was raised Catholic and it never taught me the love of Christ. In fact, you didn't really hear a whole lot about Christ. You heard a lot about God, but it taught me the fear of God and nothing about a relationship. I started getting into partying and drinking and 
trying to fill that empty hole. Got into multiple relationships with men and none of them were good. I got on my knees and I asked the Lord, I need help, I need you. My son living in a different state called me and told me his girlfriend and him were going to church and asked me how long it had been since I'd gone and I said it had been a while. And so he challenged me to go to church in Spokane while he was going to church in his state at the same time. And so I said, okay, I'll do that, son. That sounds good. So since I asked the Lord to take direction of my life, I had been praying for him to open avenues for me. So I went to church and I really enjoyed it. Then I was invited to the prophecy seminar that Amazing Facts was putting on. That was a life changer right there, going to those seminars. I think I only missed one and it went on for eight weeks and there was like two or three nights a week. Very, very intense. In the Amazing Facts seminar, I learned the truth. I'd never heard near half of what I'd learned in that seminar. Everything was backed up by the Bible. And as a child, growing up in the Catholic religion, not knowing the love of God and just the fear of God, but then when I got into the Amazing Facts seminar, really started learning the love God and I started feeling the forgiveness and the good things that I'd never really been taught. And so then when we talked about get, getting baptized, I was so excited about it. So after I was baptized, I was starting fresh. It was just a fresh new start and it was, it was wonderful. I can't even describe the feeling I had when I came up out of the water. My journey with Christ didn't stop there. I'm, you know, I search in different avenues and I, since I love Amazing Facts and what it's done for me, I tune into their uh, Doug Bachelor's radio show each day. Started ordering the Amazing Facts study guides. I started with Written in Stone. I just want to be so firm in my belief and understand and be able to answer any questions any of my friends or anybody that I meet has for me. I, I want to be able to share with people because I want them to have the freedom that I have gained through Christ and the forgiveness that I didn't think was possible and the love that I didn't think was possible. I know why they call it amazing facts because it's amazing the facts that you learn from them <laughs> because it's the truth. So I'm really excited, really excited to continue my journey and continue with amazing facts teaching me the truth. My name is Nancy. Thank you for changing my life. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. Welcome back, listening friends, to Bible Answers Live. And if you've tuned in somewhere along the way, this is a live international interactive Bible study, and you can participate 
You can call in with a Bible question, and that's 800-GOD-SAYS. Uh, you can not only listen on this radio station, you may be listening to, but uh, it's streaming live. If you want to see the video, you can go to the Amazing Facts Facebook page, the Amazing Facts YouTube page, the Doug Batchelor Facebook page, and uh, I think we're streaming live on AFTV mm -hmm. and a number of other stations. So tell your friends, if you don't have any, tell your enemies to tune in and give us a call with a Bible question. And I think, Pastor Ross, we're going to, oh, that's right, I'm Doug Batchelor. And I'm John Ross. And we're going to go back to the phone. There you go. we got Michael listening in Florida. Michael, welcome to the program. Good evening, Pastors. How are you guys doing? Evening. Well, I, I guess I just want to be candid. Um, I've been wrestling with my faith for the past few years now. And, um, but the thing is, um, one of the things for some, for whatever reason has been kind of besetting for me is the doctrine of of hell, I guess. And I just wanted to ask, what does the Bible teach about um, the ultimate fate of the wicked? Because, you know, I, I was raised to believe in the doctrine of annihilation that God ultimately destroys the wicked. But some time ago, uh, probably like a couple of weeks ago, I had like some bad dream mm -hmm. about sort of like the eternal torment form of hell. Yeah. And um, to, to be quite honest, it's, you know, Rattled you a little bit, dream. huh? Yeah, it rattled me. It's it's uh, robbed me of some sleep. It's really like you know. Well, so, first of know, all, it's just thrown off my piece, so to speak. Yeah. yeah, I understand, Michael. First of all, um, don't worry about hell if you're planning on going to heaven. So, in other words, <laughs> I don't want to give you comfort that hell won't be so bad, so you can go there. The idea is you want to be in the other place, no matter what. And then you don't have to worry uh, either way. But let me tell you what the Bible says, and hopefully it'll not only uh, bring some comfort, but I think it brings some reason. The, there's two extremes that people make when it comes to misunderstanding the subject of hell. One is that nothing happens to the wicked. And the other is this kind of medieval idea that God broils and, and burns people for billions of years, and they've never, they never stop burning for the sins of one lifetime. That's also not true. The Bible says the penalty for sin is death. Uh, Revelation says the wicked will be consumed. Uh, you read in Malachi chapter 4, it says they will be burnt up. Uh, it says you will diligently consider his place and it will not be. It says you will tread down the wicked. They are ashes under the soles of your feet. That's also in Malachi. Um, it says the Lord, uh, the penalty for sin, of course, is death. The gift of God is eternal life. God does not give eternal life to the lost. They are, everyone is cast in the lake of fire that is lost. The lost are cast into the lake of fire. Everyone is punished according to his works. If everyone burns forever, they all get the same punishment. Everyone is punished according to his works, and they are consumed. The Bible uses the words consumed, devour, burnt. Now, they are burnt with eternal fire. What that means is the result of the fire is eternal. The Bible says the fate of the wicked is the same as Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah God rained fire upon them. They were burnt. They've never been rebuilt. They were burnt with eternal fire. And so those cities aren't there anymore, and they're not still burning. And I, you know, we have a whole study on this. I, I could go on and on, but I think it'll bring you comfort. The Bible is really clear that God is fair and just in dealing with the wicked. Um, there is a hell. There is fire. But it does not burn forever and ever. You know, we've got a website called helltruth.com. 
And yeah. it's got all the scriptures there. It's actually got the lesson you're referring to as well, Pastor Dagan. For anyone wondering what's going to happen and why is this important? Well, I think, first of all, as you said, you know, for the redeemed, they're going to be in heaven. That's where we want to be. But uh, the idea of an eternal burning hell for, you know, forever, for somebody suffering um, just because of their life of sin, that's a reflection on the character of God. Would mm -hmm. a loving God do that? I think that doctrine, a misunderstanding of, of this of this doctrine, has led countless millions to turn away from God, saying, well, I don't want to serve a God like that that's going to torture people throughout eternity. That's not what the Bible says. Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully that helps a little bit, Michael. And uh, be careful not to let the devil frighten you with dreams because uh, that's really not the source of truth. We can have all kinds of dreams. We have a study guide called Is the Devil in Charge of Hell? that actually answers all of these questions. In addition to the website, just helltruth.com, you can call and ask for that study guide. The number is 800-835-6747. And uh, say, uh, ask for it. It's, is the Devil in Charge of Hell? You can also dial pound 250 on your smartphone. And just say Bible Answers Live and then ask for that study guide. And we'll be happy to send it to anyone who calls and asks. We've got Cammy in California. Cammy, welcome to the program. Good evening, pastors. Thank you very, very much for taking my phone call this evening. Okay. My question, um, it's regarding Matthew 5:48, which says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So what is meant by perfect, especially in light of all of our righteousness being as filthy rags in Isaiah 64, 6? Yeah, that is a good question because, um, you know, people are thinking, oh, wow, if if I've got to be that kind of perfect, how can I do that? I think part of the answer would be always compare Scripture with Scripture. When Jesus uses that same phrase in Luke, and if you look in Luke chapter 6, verse 36, he says, Therefore be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. And so the word perfect that he uses in Matthew is the word be mature. Um, mm -hmm. And here Jesus, he says, be merciful. God wants us to have a perfect love and mercy for other people. If the idea of being perfect means that we all needed to be some sort of super sterilized stainless steel Christians that you know are, are flawless, nobody's going to make it. Um, God wants us to have perfect love. And if we love him, we'll keep his commandments, right? So whenever I find out, uh, when I want to know what is Christian perfection, I just look at the stories in the Bible of the faithful. And I know Elijah's in heaven. I want to be like him. Well, the Bible says Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, but he, he prayed and God answered his prayers. I want to have the kind of faith Daniel had where he said, I love the Lord so much that I'd rather go to the lion's den than disobey him or the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Peter, James, and John, who will be in heaven, but they were arguing with each other about which of them was the greatest. They were human. And so, you know, God wants us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to be like him, uh, be born again, to have that uh, Christian perfection. Hopefully that helps a little bit. Sometimes, I remember I first read that, and it said, be perfect, even as the Father is perfect. And I thought, Wow, not only that, you read in, uh, I think it's First Peter, he says, be holy as I am holy. I think, how am I ever going to be as perfect and holy as God? Well, the only way that happens is if God washes us from our sin and gives us his spirit and his character, so we reflect his image. So it's the born-again experience he's talking about. You know, I also think just one, uh, this is, uh, when Jesus says, be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect, it's, 
it's it's more of a promise than a command because how can someone who is imperfect be perfect? Mm-hmm. But there is a promise that God is able to do that which we cannot do for ourselves. Yeah. So to be perfect is a gift of God. It is the Spirit of God working within us. We are to cooperate, but in reality, it is the working of God. Mm. All right. Thank you for your call. We've got Noah listening in Kentucky. Noah, welcome to the program. Hey, Pastor Doug. Hi. My question is, if you sell your soul uh, to Satan and get something in return, uh, can you repent and return to God and still go to heaven, or, or is, is it over? Is it final? You know, like. Yeah, that's a good question. So if you make a deal with the devil and you promise, you make a vow, can you break a vow made to the devil? I would say yes, because otherwise that would be the unpardonable sin. Um, so, I mean... There's a lot of examples in the Bible of people that uh, were serving the devil and uh, God transformed them. You got, you know, King Manasseh, that he was sold out worshiping pagan gods, but he was converted, he repented. And so to, to make a vow to the devil is a sin. So can God forgive sin? Yes, he'll forgive that sin. First of all, the sin of breaking a promise to the devil. Secondly, even dealing with the devil. But yeah, don't fall into that trap of thinking, well, I made a promise to the devil and he gave me what I wanted and now I'm, I'm lost. Repent of what you did. And uh, let me give you an example. Maybe it's not a good one, but sometimes when we're desperate, we do things and I think God knows you're just not in your right mind. I was hitchhiking one time and praying for a ride and hours went by and I couldn't get a ride and I thought I was going to die out in the desert on this freeway. And I rashly promised. I said, Lord, if you'll give me a ride, I promise if I ever get a car, I will pick up every hitchhiker that I see. I was tired and hungry, and, and so I made this kind of a rash promise. Well, I tried when I first got my car to pick up every hitchhiker, and then as time went by, I realized this is absurd. I couldn't do it. And I just said, Lord, you know, that was foolish, and I hope you'll forgive me. <laughs> but that doesn't mean a Christian shouldn't keep their promises, but I think sometimes we... We do things like that, and God winks at our ignorance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you know the Bible says that, I don't know if I should say this. <laughs> the Bible says that if a wife makes a vow, the husband can, can overrule it. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Have uh, you ever tried to overrule uh, when your wife makes yeah, a vow? Yeah, but I was three weeks <laughs> in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, I think I, I've, I, I don't call it overruling. Don't use that word. <laughs> I'd say, hey, Karen, let's talk about that. <laughs> All right, new subject. All Thanks. Right. Hope that helps a little bit. Next caller that we have is Aaron listening in New York. Aaron, welcome to the program. You're on the air. Good evening, pastors. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, let us keep the feast. I don't, I don't see the word feast mentioned anywhere else in the chapter. My question is, what is the meaning of, the, of this Bible verse? Yeah, well, he's, he talks in verse 6, he talks about, do you not know a little leaven, leaven's a whole lump. He's making a reference that all the Jews understood, and I suppose the Corinthian Christians did, about the Passover. They were not to have any leaven in their bread. And leaven here is a symbol of sin. That's why Jesus told the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the sin or false doctrine. And so then he says, let us therefore keep the feast, not with the old leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread. So later, 
and I think it's, is it first or second Corinthians? He talks about the Passover. That may be, a, rather, the Lord's Supper. That may be second Corinthians. But anyway, I think the listeners understood that he's talking about um, the Passover as a symbol of salvation. The angel of judgment passes over because of the blood of the Lamb. So they understood that. And I think also part of the controversy in, in the Old Testament, or actually in the New Testament, I should say, in, in Corinth, was you had the Jewish believers and then you had the Gentile believers. And the Jewish believers were telling the Gentile believers that they had to keep all of the laws of the Old Testament ceremonial related to Sabbath. the ceremonial yeah. laws. Yeah, and the Passover and so on. Paul is almost saying here that if you're going to keep the feast, it, it says, therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's even going a little bit deeper and saying, it's not about the, the keeping of the feast, meaning removing the leaven from the house, but rather there's a spiritual application yeah. that he's trying to bring to view. Have leaven out of your heart. It has Just like he says, Jesus is our Passover. Right. We don't keep the Passover. We don't it's a spiritual. Lives. Spiritual uh, application truth. of it, yeah. Thank you. Good question, Aaron. All right, next caller that we have is Her uh, Henry in New York. Henry, welcome to the program. Yes, hello, Pastor uh, God. Uh, my question is, uh, when Jesus Christ went back, and for, for the women who were pregnant in their state, were the babies born in heaven? Oh, right. That's a great question. I remember I was doing a, uh, a Bible answer one time uh, on TV, and the pastor read the question that what's going to happen to women who are pregnant when Jesus comes? And I said, well, they'll be delivered. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I assume that uh, either they would get their glorified bodies and have a painless birth in heaven, because in the Garden of Eden, there was no pain in childbirth. Um, but I'm, I'm more inclined to believe that uh, when they get their glorified bodies, the little baby's going to be placed in their arms as a, a new baby. Um, again, there's a lot of things that we speculate about. And, you know, people say, What's going to happen to folks that are on the International Space Station when Jesus comes? Uh, so you, you'll get all kinds of uh, odd scenarios that are kind of hard to comprehend, but I don't worry about that. But yeah, if a woman's saved and she's pregnant, when Jesus comes, she can be sure that she'll either have a painless birth in heaven or those angels will hand her that life uh, with her glorified body. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, next caller that we have calling from Nevada and uh, Dwellen. Is that correct? Dwellen. Dwellen. Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Um, my question is in Matthew 12, 43 to 45, talking about when an unclean spirit goes out of a man and goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none, then he says, I return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty and swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And, and um, I w my question is, are the evil, are, are the spirits, are the evil angels different levels of wickedness? Well, I think they probably could be. Um, I, well, I think that we've learned that even among the good angels, it seems like there's different ranking. And so there might be some evil angels that are more powerful, which would make them more effectively wicked. Uh, angels, every one of them, they are created and they're individuals. And, you know, they have different personalities, just as people do. The good angels are all holy. The bad angels are all bad. But they're unique. They're not like cookie-cutter robots. And so I suppose when Jesus said he'll take with him some that are even more wicked, that there are 
varying degrees among the evil angels. Well, you know, we notice that even in the um, experience that Jesus had. Remember one occasion, uh, a man brought his son to Christ and he was demon-possessed and the disciples couldn't cast the devils out. Yeah. And then Jesus said, well, this kind comes out with prayer and fasting. So there does seem to be some kind of rank or it was more power intense, yeah. Yeah, than, than others, which, yeah, interesting. So, yes, and I think that the, the most important part of that uh, parable, and it is a parable, is Jesus is saying, if you come to him and the, the devils are cast out and you're forgiven of your sins, replace that in your life with something good. If you don't introduce the light of the truth in your life, eventually the darkness comes back and it can seem even darker. It's mm -hmm. like uh, where Peter said if someone, or it's Hebrews rather in chapter, is it chapter four, verse six or six, verse four, where he said if someone turns away from the truth, uh, the latter state of that man is worse than the beginning. Peter says it's like the dog returning to his vomit mm -hmm. or the pig that was washed a wallowing in the mire and in Hebrews it says it's impossible to renew them to repentance. And so it's like the, the grip of the devil doubles if you turn back. It's not that you can't be saved, but it can be more difficult. Okay, next caller that we have is Michael listening in California. Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you. Yes, sir. Had a question for you about the feast days. Uh, Leviticus 23, they're listed right there. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first three verses are talking about the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath. Right. Now, I've, I've been keeping these days since 1975, and it, I, don't, I don't know who to ask about this, but I'll, I'll throw it at you. Uh, those weekly Sabbaths on the thir uh, on the, uh, first three verses should be included in the new year, correct? As you have the Day of Atonement, you have Feast of Trumpets and all that. Uh, God lists them from that point on, and uh, it's based on the spring equinox, the, uh, the tenth day you select the the, the lamb, and so on the fourteenth day you kill him. Let me and just you sacrifice him. Yeah, let me pause you for a second just to make sure I'm understanding. Are you uh, are you are you asking if we should be keeping the annual feasts because the the Sabbath in verse three is a weekly feast, and the other ones mentioned in chapter twenty three are the annual feasts. That's correct. So you're wondering if we should keep them the same? They should be in the same year. That that would mean that there would be a new calendar every year because those days change. And instead of using the uh, Gregory Pope calendar, oh, the, yeah, well, the Gregorian the Gregorian calendar had nothing to do with the Jewish feast days. That didn't come around until that's correct. Jul yeah, yeah. You're right. Well, Julius Caesar is the Julian calendar, and then later you had uh, the Pope Gregory updated the Julian calendar, and that's why we're now living under the Gregorian. But neither of those had anything to do with Leviticus. They they lived long before. Leviticus is long before the Caesars. Uh, so but just, you, yeah, uh, well, let me count jump. the days, though. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, let me just jump in here now. And um, I, what's happening in Leviticus 23 is Moses is going through the annual feasts. He begins by separating the weekly Sabbath and saying, of course, six days your work will be done. The seventh day is the Sabbath, a holy convocation. You gather together in all your dwellings. That's a weekly cycle. That was part of creation, part of God's perfect plan. It says in heaven, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh will come and worship before the Lord. And so that's a memorial of salvation. It's a memorial of creation. The Levitical annual feast did not happen until after 2,000 years after sin, or even more than that, because it was after um, Moses, after the Exodus. And they were nailed to the cross. 
You know, if someone wants to keep them, well, more power to you. Paul said, you know, if you're going to keep a day, keep it to the Lord. If you're not going to keep it, don't keep it. He's talking about the annual feasts because the Jewish believers were telling the Christian believers, you have to keep Passover, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, and they didn't. Uh, they didn't have to. Uh, the, the one that we're still obligated to keep is the one that's in the Ten Commandments. The annual feasts are not part of the Ten Commandments. So we do have a book that talks about the should Christians keep the feast days. And we'll be happy to send you a copy of that, Michael. You know, just to add to that quickly, Pastor Day, you know, I think it might be confusing. Sometimes the ceremonial Sabbaths were referred to as Sabbaths. So you have the sixth day, mm -hmm. you know, every seventh, seventh day Sabbath, but then you have the annual Sabbath. The, the feast days were to be commemorated like a Sabbath. In other words, they right. were to work on that day. Right. And it was a gathering, a holy convocation which occurred also on the seventh-day Sabbath. So mm -hmm. when you see the word Sabbath, it could refer to the seventh-day Sabbath, or it could be referring to one of those ceremonial Sabbaths. And that's why you need to you need to figure out, is this an annual day that it's talking about, or is this the weekly day? And that's right. the distinction. Some were ceremonial, part of the Levitical law. The weekly Sabbath was part of the Ten Commandments, mm -hmm. and it had a very practical application for all people uh, at all time, and even the animals were to be given a day of rest. So um, just want to make sure that we're separating the two out. And I think Michael was saying that he thought we should still be under an obligation to keep both. So we do have that book. It's called uh, Feast Days and Sabbaths. We'll be happy to send it to anyone who calls and asks. The number is 800-835-6747. Or you can dial pound 250 on your smartphone. Let's see, Pastor Doug, we might have time for one or two more callers. Let's try for, uh, we've got Thomas in New York. Thomas, welcome to the program. Oh, how you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Um, there's a lot of stuff on the internet here about, you know, Ellen G. White tried to predict the end of the world, William Miller, and they say Ellen G. White fought the prophet, you know, the Sunday went to fault. How do I address this when they, they say the Sunday went to try to predict the second coming of Christ? Like, how, what should I tell them? Ellen White never predicted the second coming of Christ. Uh, Ellen White was uh, one of many um, Christians in the 18th, uh, 19th century that uh, were in the Millerite movement, and the Millerite movement was believing that Christ was coming in 1844. But uh, she did not predict that, and uh, actually later said that was a mistake. So um, people that try to connect the two, it, it's just not accurate. It was William Miller that established that date. I don't think the Bible's quite clear, Pastor Doug, that no man knows the day or the hour. So if yeah. anyone's trying to predict when Jesus is coming, well, be aware. That's yeah, and Ellen White said, what the Bible don't says. predict it. No one knows That's the right. day or the hour. So hopefully that answers that. Do we have uh, half a question? We yeah, can we got Robert in Washington. Robert, real quick, we got just a few minutes. Yeah, real fast. Thank you for taking the call. On First Samuel 16 and verse 16 and 23, it says an evil spirit from God. I didn't think that evil spirits came from God. If you could explain that to me, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, good question. Um, probably the best way to understand that is when you read the book of Job, the devil was asking permission to prove that Job wasn't really loyal to God, and God had to basically... Uh, lengthen the devil's leash or allow him to do it. So you might say, well, God sent the devil to Job. Uh, you know, God, all, every good and perfect gift comes from God. God allowed Job to be tested to a certain point uh, to demonstrate his faith and even to strengthen his faith. But 
it was the devil that did it. It was the devil that initiated it. And it's the same thing that you're reading about with King Saul. Saul grieved away the Holy Spirit because of his pride. And when you grieve away the light, the only thing that's left is darkness. The devil came in as an evil spirit and filled that vacuum and tormented the king. So the Hebrew uses kind of the old phrase, came from the Lord. Hey, friends, you've asked some great questions tonight. And I just as time goes so quickly, wish we had more time, Pastor Ross. Thanks so much for studying the Word of God with us. And uh, Lord willing, we'll do it again together next week. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California. What if you could know the future? What would you do? What would you change? To see the future, you must understand the past. Alexander the Great becomes king when he's only 18, but he's a military prodigy. 150 years in advance, Cyrus had been named. Rome was violent, they were ruthless, they were determined. The gospel writers see his death as a fulfillment of salvation. This intriguing documentary, hosted by Pastor Doug Batchelor, explores the most striking Bible prophecies that have been dramatically fulfilled throughout history, Kingdoms in Time. Get your copy today. Available now on DVD, Blu-ray, or USB. For more information, visit KingdomsInTime.com. Did you know that Noah was present at the birth of Abraham? Okay, maybe he wasn't in the room but he was alive and probably telling stories about his floating zoo. From the creation of the world to the last day events of Revelation, BibleHistory.com is a free resource where you can explore major Bible events and characters, enhance your knowledge of the Bible, and draw closer to God's Word. Go deeper. Visit the amazing Bible timeline at BibleHistory.com. The U.S. government is drowning in debt to the tune of $22 trillion. But before you wag your finger at the government spending, the Federal Reserve says the average American household carries over $137,000 in debt. Well, it was never God's plan that we live with a burden of debt. Proverbs 22.7 warns us, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Living with debt is a stressful burden that actually hurts your relationship with God. In my new pocketbook, deliverance from debt, I outline the Bible principles on how to properly manage your money with some practical suggestions on how you can get out and stay out of debt. If you or someone you love is drowning in debt, order a copy of Deliverance from Debt today. It can be a lifesaver to keep you from going under. Please call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. Hello, friends. For those of you who stayed by, we had to greet and say goodbye to those listening on satellite radio. But for the rest of you, we've got your email questions that we'd like to answer. If you have a Bible question you want to email to us, it's just balquestions at amazingfacts.org. Pastor Doug, question number one. Is Satan an angel? I know that he was a covering cherub, but is that the same as an angelic being? Well, I think that uh, he would be in the category uh, of angels. 
And you can read, is it Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11? It says, and no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Well, he's an angel of darkness, but he can look like an angel of light. So we would categorize him as an angel. Does a person need to be baptized to get to heaven? Well, we are not saved by virtue of baptism. I don't want to give the wrong impression. There, there will be people in heaven who are not baptized. Uh, but Christ is pretty clear in the New Testament. It says John the Baptist was doing baptism, and the last words of Jesus are, go teach, baptize. And he said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And Peter said, repent and be baptized, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So baptism is as important to a Christian as a wedding is to a marriage. Mm -hmm. uh, so if a believer can be, they must be. All right, then there's a follow-on question. It says, um, who then can do the baptism? Can any other Christian do the baptism, or do they have to be a licensed pastor? How does that work? You know, it seems that in the Bible that Jesus authorized certain leadership to perform baptisms. They were the very least deacons, but typically the apostles. And in Samaria, when they accepted the Lord, they then sent John and Peter to lay hands on them. And so there was some authority designated, making sure those that were baptized were clearly instructed in the gospel. Okay. Uh, do we know anything more about this, the mark that was placed on Cain after he killed Abel? You know, that is something of an enigma. And pardon the play on words. It just says a mark. And it's, it's, the word is almost like, you know, something that would be impressed or engraved. But it may have been a mark as though he was a marked man. There was some significant difference. Or he had been marked by his behavior and his record. It's, we really don't know. It doesn't say anything more than what you read there in the text. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you also find a mark in Revelation. Yeah, so there's an the analogy well. there. Uh, last quick question, Pastor Doug. Why are there gates on the New Jerusalem if uh, there's no, nothing evil outside? Gates aren't all bad to keep bad things out. Gates are also borders to keep good in and uh, just gives us a, a delineation. Thank you so much again for your questions. God bless. We'll study again together next week. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific time. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live. Honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.